From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's the show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I guess you could fucking do that. <laughs> the door is open. You can open it. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Get, just open the door. Is that the dog? <laughs> no, it's her cat. Siamese cat. cat. She knows that that's like the, the tone to like get the door open. <laughs> I love that she waited. Waited until literally, literally until it just started recording and that... That's what we get. I love your cat. Bitch, I love her so much. (laughs) And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. And each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Mike Snoonian. He's a writer, therapist, and podcaster who co-hosts The Pod and the Pendulum and The Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast podcast he's also the co-host and assistant programmer for the tell you ride horror show welcome to the show mike we're so stoked for you to be here 
Yeah. I am so excited to come on the show and speak with y'all because we've definitely spoken separately before and it is I love this show. So I'm really, really excited to be a part of it. Thank you for having me on. We're excited to have you. You've been yeah. You've been on our on our list and I've had this movie on my list for you for like over a year. And Mm -hmm. it's just like I saw that, you know, it's gonna be celebrating its thirtieth anniversary and I'm like, oh, that'd be like the perfect time for it. But (laughs) before we do get to that though, let's take it back to the beginning. How did you get introduced to horror so i got introduced to horror through my grandmother um on my mom's side nana nana loved old scary movies but did not like watching them alone so she used to like pay her grandchildren a few bucks to stay up late and watch horror movies with her so i have like really fun memories of watching things like nosferatu with her as a really young age that's amazing I also remember like using her phone to call the Freddy Krueger hotline and racking up like a $150 phone bill, which she was less thrilled about. Um, so God rest your soul, Nana. And I just like fell in love with the horror movies at a really early age. Like my dad would watch the creature double feature movies on the local mm-hmm. UHF affiliate. So we'd watch like Universal and Hammer Horror. Mm-hmm. And then the Tales from the Dark Side show would be on yeah. after that. And then just growing up in the 80s, like you would just like bike to the local mom and pop video store. You would grab a Friday the 13th movie or Faces of Death or like anything that looked cool. Mm-hmm. And just like that would be your Saturday night, like watching horror movies with friends with pizza. And, you know, I mean, like before the internet, if the only way is a young man, you could see boobies was to really rent horror movies or yeah. find you know forest porn the person they would like horror porn. Porn. Forest, forest porn yes. is oh. my favorite we've talked about forest is... porn a couple times in the show god damn so forest porn just yeah i mean i had a really it's, it's pretty typical childhood when it comes to horror movies and it, it, it's it's how I got started, like watching them, like as a kid, just reading Stephen King mm. or any book about vampires or zombies or ghosts. Mm. You could check out of the library, sitting around with friends, and then just being like, "These are the coolest movies in the whole world." Just absolutely falling in love with horror. I have to ask though, what what was it like to call that Freddy number? Because I remember wanting to call it my parents being like absolutely not what was do you remember anything about it <laughs> they were if i remember correctly it was like freddie introducing the call and then it would launch into like a short story so like a usually a three to four minute story so each call was basically somewhere between like eight and ten dollars when all was said and done and they weren't particularly they weren't particularly great stories. <laughs> kind of like, I don't know if you remember the Elm Street television show. Oh, I sure do. Yeah. Which at the time, like in like eighth grade, when that would come on, like that followed by the Friday the 13th TV series, like that was my Friday night, you know, junior high school jam. Like that's what I would watch. And like, this is the greatest shit ever. And then like as an adult, you go back, you're like, oh my, this was... This certainly was something. <laughs> it was something. <laughs> so it was kind of the telephone equivalent of that. Amazing. That. And so, like, you mentioned a bunch of stuff that you watched with your family, but what were some of your favorites growing up? Some of your horror favorites? 
my horror favorite, like the one that got me to be to really sunk its teeth into me, was actually Freddy's Revenge: A Nightmare mm-hmm. on Elm Street Part Two. Oh, that cool. was the first Elm Street movie that I watched, and I remember it was in my friend's basement. It was the friend that had the swimming pool in the big house, so we would go oh, there and yep. watch movies and go mm-hmm. swimming. And we would yep. we watched that movie from like behind the sofa because it scared the bejesus out of us. And I just remember like as soon as Freddie pops out of Jesse's oh, yeah. stomach and pulls himself out, we're like, I'm in. Like this, uh, this is all I want for the rest of my life right now. I just want to watch these movies. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three. I have a habit of like watching movies like, but not the first entry. Well, I also think with the 80s that that, that happened a lot because um, I, I remember, you know, it would be whatever one you could get your hands on. Because I, I honestly think the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie I saw was the fourth one. I'm not 100% sure, sure but I think it might have been. I know I saw the Jason movies later, like mm-hmm. uh, out of order. So I, I, when you're that age, it's not like you have a bazillion movies just ready to click and you start from the beginning. It's what you can get your hands on. It's the opposite of today because no one cared about continuity back then not even the people making these movies really cared about any sort of continuity like we just like wanted fun movies it's kind of the opposite of now where everything gets kind of like drilled down into the nth detail and Mm -hmm. you can't make any sort of slight error without it really being picked over um the other movie that stood out, I, I had a, a, an uncle that who developed my love for movies. Like every Christmas Eve, he would take all of his nieces and nephews to the movie so he could get ready for the family Christmas parties. And, you know, it's where, like, I saw Flash Gordon and mm. uh, 9 to 5 when I was four years old. He took us to see <laughs> 9 to 5. Didn't understand <laughs> half of what was going on, but thought Dolly Parton was fantastic. Uh, yeah, he Rocky Four was one of the others. He had like the first video cassette recorder of anyone in our family, and okay. every Friday he would watch myself and my cousin, and he would just rent anything and be like, "Yeah, watch this." So like The Shining at age eight, <laughs> um, Halloween three at age eight, like way too young to watch these things. Love that um, though. But Halloween 2 and The Howling were two movies that were on Channel 38 every Halloween season over and Mm -hmm. over again. So, like, those are the two I probably most look forward to. I remember, like, getting excited in October because I was going to see Halloween 2 without without have seeing John Carpenter's original, but thinking, like, it was the scariest movie ever. Um, I will just really quick. I saw Halloween two. I saw Halloween two for the first time last week. Wow, it's real. It's really fucking good, isn't it? I think it is. It, I just loved it. It's. it's I think it's incredible. Yeah. It's. It's more fun than Halloween. It's not as good as Carpenter's movie, but it might be like what I would throw on at a party before mm-hmm. I would throw on Carpenter's. And I think like the continuity. Yeah. Like Dean Cundy's cinematography. Oh, it's just, I love that movie. It's just, it's so creepy. And I think it's got like more, it's got stereotypical slasher kills, like more fun kills in it that yeah. are fun, like you said, have had in a party. It's like not as like terrifying as the original, but it's mm-hmm. got, like you said, more fun, like the setting. I don't know. Yeah. Derailing, but. Plus, it has Michael movie. Myers jumping good. out like a cat at one point early in the movie. <laughs> He's like, cat, just like, love it. <laughs> Like that it's always so cracks me up. So I'm for it's it. Incredible. So you, I, it sounds like you watched a whole lot of horror movies as a kid. Did were you, yeah. did they ever scare you? Um, I, mean, I yeah. We're talk about one, but like, oh god, I went through a period where I had like absolutely horrific nightmares, and I'll save okay. 
them for when we talk about the movie because like, this one gave me specific nightmares okay i read oh. a lot of books about like true ghosts and true vampires and mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. that and i remember at one point mm-hmm. i was so scared when i woke up i was walking around my house carrying a statue of the virgin mary to protect me and like holding it out to ward off evil oh my god oh my god that's yeah. amazing and I read at the end of fifth grade, I just finished reading Jay Anson's The Amityville Horror, mm. which would have been like a sacri- – no, my, my, my parents were like uber religious, but we were practicing Catholics. Um, mm-hmm. But they weren't like uber, uber religious. But that would have been like not the kind of book my mom would have approved if she knew I was reading it. And – I woke up with chicken pox the day after I read it, and I was convinced that God was punishing me for reading this super sacrilegious book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I grew up. My parents always let me read just about anything, so I read a lot of Stephen King, Mm -hmm. even though I didn't understand any of the sex bits of it. Oh, yeah. Um, Like, that That was was all over my head. Like... She didn't quite know what was going on with that section of it for a very long time. Like again, oh, I know. far too young. I it's funny because I have a distinct memory of the one there's one scene in the stand where the kid is shoving a gun up trash can man's mm-hmm. butt and I didn't understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I that that is that that's the joy of reading Stephen mm-hmm. King really young is like there's so much in there that you just don't understand what is actually right. happening. And your parents are usually like, he's reading. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Your pa- like, what parents are going to be like, oh, I don't want you to read? Uh, I mean, it was the 80s. Like, we had, like, vinyl seats and no seat belts and, <laughs> you know, like, mom chain smoking in the basement doing the laundry and, like, opening the doors. Like, go play in the woods and don't come back till lunch. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so different from... <laughs> You know, so yeah. different from how uh, our kids are now. So, oh, the yeah. good old days. I mean, that was the same with me. It was like I lived in Alaska. Parents would just let me out and I'd go wander the woods for a whole eight hours and come home for dinner. And it was like I was normal. It was the and best. And now it's like, how am I still alive? <laughs> we could get into, because I work as a therapist, we could get all into child psychology and how we're doing kids like a disservice now with like setting up play dates and helicopter mm. parenting and kind of like not letting kids figure out peer conflicts, taking mm. away things like recess and... God, we could get into a whole debate of how we're just messing generations up, but we'll save that. I think I was like, so I grew up in the 90s and mm-hmm. the early 2000s, but my, and I, I didn't live near the woods. No, I did. I did kind of, I did wander in the woods, but my mom was very much like, go forth and play with the kids in the neighborhood and just like, I didn't have a cell. It was like right before I had a cell mm-hmm. phone, but I lived right by the playground. So she's like, just go and like, I'll come check on you. And it was great. And there was like a creepy old house in the woods behind the <sighs> soccer fields that we would always try to dare each other to go into. <sighs> and I was always too scared. But like, that was the best because there was a, even a creepy old house that used to be a plantation. Thank you, Maryland, that we would all just like stare at and try to like go into. Did you grow up near like the Rustin Parr house from Player Witch Project? Like is that <laughs> No, but now I live near I live near Burkittsville oh, now, beautiful. like forty minutes. Mm-hmm. But no, this but this like has it it had a similar vibe, but it was it wasn't like it wasn't stone, mm-hmm. but still pretty still pretty fucking creepy. Right <laughs> behind the so elementary cool. school. <laughs> that is but so yeah. cool. 
That's amazing. And then they restored it. And I was like, damn it, you got damn rid of the spooky house and made it nice. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it, you guys, trying to preserve history. Yeah. It's like history. <laughs> Looking at the Michael Myers house and Halloween Kills, I'm like, I would live there. I love what they're doing with the wall sconces. Like, it, uh, it, yeah, I was like, the, the, I guess like the <gasps> painting, the decoration, oh, I would totally live in that beautiful. house. <laughs> it was beautiful. Um, so what, what draws you to horror now as an adult? So I would say it, it, horror never really left me. I would say there was a dry spell in the 90s, mm-hmm. and then that was kicked off again by, like, Scream and Blair Witch Project. What really drew me back into horror and, like, really sunk its hook into me, I left the Boston area for a while for a really terrible job mm. and an upstate New York. And I ended up moving back and throwing like a, a welcome back dinner with friends where we're like, Hey, we're going to have a pancake party and watch cabin fever. And everyone's like, why are we going to have pancakes and watch this movie? I'm like, you'll get it when you see it. And it just was like, you know, 20 friends sitting around. Exactly. When that happened, they're like, Oh, okay, we get it. And I'm like, this is the greatest, like just sitting around and watching, horror movies with friends um so every sunday night like i would post in this local message board at the time um we'd be like hey we're gonna have a double feature bring a couple dvds over anyone who's not an asshole is welcome to come we'll fire up the grill and then watch movies and like strangers would just show up like strangers would just show up we had this like punk house where nine of us lived there we were all like semi-professionals but played in like bands or did comedy or whatever you know it was kind of that in between like i'll sleep in an alleyway as a gutter punk (laughs) versus like i will rock out on weekends face you know with dad rock right right and like so people that remain my friends to this day uh, would just kind of show up at the house and we would just watch movies, eat food, tell jokes. And I'm like, this is, there's nothing better than this. When Land of the Dead came out, we all dressed like zombies and rolled around in like mud. Oh my, and then this sounds sh- amazing. Oh, it was, it was just fun. It was just thinking back on it. I'm like, God damn, I hope I appreciated how much fun things like this did. We kind of like, we shambled down Lansdowne Street, which if you know Boston, like that at the time was where all the clubs were. Okay. So you have like all of these like Friday night club goers and you have like 20 of us like dressed like zombies kind of just shamble walking to the theater. Oh and it God. was like, what the fuck is going on here? So, that's amazing. That's fucking yeah. amazing. <laughs> so that's where I realized that like just. I I love horror movies. We started a site called All Things Horror, uh, my friend Chris Halleck and I, and we put a really large focus on independent horror movies. Like we started to go to film fest, like the Boston Underground Film Fest, the New York Mm -hmm. City Horror Film Festival. And it was right around that time where people like uh, Aaron Benson, just or uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, Jeremy Gardner, um, Shannon Lark, uh, Heidi Honeycutt, uh, all of these young filmmakers were making these incredible works of like indie horror cinema. And we're like, this is what we want to do. Like, this is where we want to focus. And from like 09 to roughly 16, 17, like I ran all things horror as a little blog and had like writers come on for, unfortunately for free. Uh, we would screen movies in Boston, um, that were playing the festival circuit. And I'm like, this is it. Like, this is my little niche. Um, at the time before that, I was playing in like really crappy hardcore bands and trying stand up comedy. 
and my wife gave me like the best piece of advice anyone's ever given me um besides like keep it clean down there uh it was um (laughs) she's like you know like you're spreading yourself like really thin like doing all these little things that you love like what if you focused on one thing and made a go at it and you know writing and talking about horror ended up being it it's probably what i'm probably what i'm most passionate about that's awesome yeah wow um that makes me want to invite all my friends over right now for like a pizza party to watch horror movies like so badly you know if you're vaccinated or you can you know watch a movie outside oh nothing like it just yes all of my friends are vaccinated i don't (laughs) i've made sure but um so you you've talked a lot about how like you were you were scared when you were a kid do you still get scared now when you watch horror movies sometimes Mm -hmm. there are movies especially in the right setting like there are movies that can get under my skin and give me the willies um I'm trying to think of what has recently. I would say, like, the Babadook scared Mm. the hell out of me. I would say movies about aging or movies about kind of moving from one phase in life to another where there's a big life change. Like, things like that really get under my skin to this day. Hereditary got under my skin. Uh, It was, like, right when I was going through – it was a scary movie, but it was right when I was going through grad school and – in looking at a lot of mental health things and trying to like feel like yeah. what would it be like to kind of go through this. Right. Those movies, like the descent scared the hell out of me. Mm. Oh, yeah. have you seen relic? Yes, I think I'm trying to think now the one, um, where uh, I forget. I can't remember who the main actress is, but she goes back to Emily her, Mortimer, uh, Emily Mortimer. And she goes back to her, her mom's house and she's yes. dealing with dementia. Yes, I did see that. That is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it scared me. It okay. moved me. I know yeah. that it moved me. Um, again, looking at you know inherited mental illness and how mm-hmm. your body, but more importantly, that your brain can betray you mm-hmm. um, because you know your body always changes. I mean, your yeah. body. Like I don't look at age forty six. I don't look like I did when I was in my twenties. Or in my 30s, you know, like your body just kind of go, and that's kind of natural. And I don't think you notice it as much over time. But there are times when like, I can't recall, like something will be at the uh, just on the tip of my tongue, or I can't recall like an actor. And that worries me a lot more because, you know, I don't want to be an ass, but I'm like, I'm proud of being fairly intelligent i'm proud yeah. of my intellect i like mm-hmm. my brain and i think that that's yeah. where we all live like we all kind of like live within our own heads to a certain way and to get trapped inside of that i think would be very very thinking of that is what scares me yeah yeah got deep god. there wow. oh my god little <laughs> let's go back to woods porn all right let's <laughs> But but that is a good transition point to talk about one of your podcasts, the mm-hmm. Psychoanalysis uh, Horror mm-hmm. Therapy Podcast. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about about that podcast and what yes. you all do? Absolutely. So I have the very good fortune to co-host this podcast along with Jen Adams, mm-hmm. who is one of the co-hosts and fixtures of the Losers Club, mm-hmm. and Lara Unersall, who is a filmmaker and has appeared on shows like um, Halloweenies, especially the second season with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I don't know anyone who puts more effort in and works harder than Jen Adams. Um, and this is something I, I would tell her. Literally, yeah. 
I, she is the most incredible person. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm putting her on blast here. She sends me pitches for Dread mm-hmm. Central all the time, and I accept all of them because they're so good. And her writing is like, she turns in the best copy I've mm-hmm. ever seen. I'm like, who are you? Yeah. Like, you are an incredible person, and you are just so smart and so mm-hmm. talented and so kind. Like, she she's is. just great. I, I love get, Jen. I get to work with two <laughs> fiercely intelligent in empathetic women in both Jen and Lara mm-hmm. and psychoanalysis. It's as in my day job, I work as a therapist as well as a school counselor for middle school children. Um, and the, I will say the nice thing is I will never not be without a job working in the mental health field. Like there are not enough of us in far too many clients. Um, you know, and I feel bad saying that because I think everybody could use and benefit from therapy in some way, and uh-huh. there's just not enough of us to go around. Um, but it, it, we basically what we do is we look at different topics in mental health, whether it be grief, depression, anxiety, psychopathy. Uh, we've done schizophrenia, but every month we have a topic, and we take two movies that really depict that topic well so for example last month we did psychopathy and we did henry portrait of a serial killer and martin scorsese's remake of cape fear um and what we'll do is we'll dig into like the symptoms of the disease the traits to look out for um the um potential efficacy of treatments for it uh, and what potential outcomes can be. Uh, Most of it is like peer-reviewed, peer research. So we try to take it serious and then we explore how the movie makes us feel when we watch it, our history with the movie, and then dive into the themes of it. So we do two of those episodes a month and we alternate those with what we call comfort horror movies where we have guests on and they bring a movie to us and they talk about why a movie you know, brings them comfort or joy or why it's like kind of their go-to and those tend to be a little bit lighter um episodes so that's what we're doing with psychoanalysis um we've been doing it since i think we dropped our first episode like june of 2020 so we're about a year and a half in and it feels like we're hitting our stride um you guys are killing it it uh, yeah you you guys really are i I don't have imposter syndrome. Like I, I know a lot of people will say like, ah, if anyone listens, that's great. No, I'm really proud of the work that we do in that show. Like I will be upfront and because it makes me better at my job. Like I do a lot more reading, a lot more research than I would do otherwise. Um, and I think horror more than any genre can dive into the human condition. It does an amazing job of depicting, all of our fears, uh, all of our worries, all of our anxieties, but it also, in, in the right circumstance, can can give people like a lot to cope with. You know, mm-hmm. I had this conversation with a driver when I was out at Telluride. I was like, "Why are you watching horror movies? Isn't there enough like bad shit in the world?" I'm like, "Well, this mm. actually, you know, horror mm-hmm. fans mm-hmm. tend to cope better with." what's going on in the world around them. They have more tools to do so. They tend to be more empathetic and they tend to kind of confront their 
anxieties or terror a little bit more. So I, I bring this up a lot of times uh, on the podcast, but it, it's Wes Craven, his quote that uh, horror is a is boot camp for the psyche. Yeah, that quote, and then the other quote about how it doesn't create fear; it releases it. Like mm-hmm. those, that's how mm-hmm. I always feel about the horror genre. Yeah. Whenever someone asks me, like a random, like, "Why? Oh, why? How can you go to a festival right. watching so many horror movies?" And like, well. I also got asked the horrible question of like, you're such a nice person. How could you like horror movies? Like my family, my family has stopped asking that question, but for a long time they were just like, you're so sweet. I'm like, are you still into that stuff? You know, (laughs) I could just say like, well, John Wayne Gacy was a community leader as well. So, you know, that maybe, you know, um, yeah, we we get stuff like, why do you watch that? You know, stuff like that. The best is like my daughter really loves horror as well. And she's 11. Mm-hmm. And I am far more permissive of a parent than mine were. Like, she doesn't have to really sneak to watch anything. Mm-hmm. So she'll describe like scenes from like Psycho Goreman to her friend's parents. <laughs> and her friend's parents are like, you're not going to let our kid watch that while she's there are you i'm like no of course not we definitely no we're gonna watch sallow you know 120 (laughs) nights of sodom you know what kind of person do you think i am you're gonna screen the sadness for the the late the the class of 11 year olds i can't wait till ada watches the sadness when that comes out oh i love that movie so much and it's yeah, she'll be twelve when we can watch it, so that's it's about the right age. It's it's a PG thirteen movie, so oh, we're kind of on the kind of on the cusp. Like, <laughs> yeah, like PG PG thirteen. Yeah. Like it's just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you also have another podcast, yep. uh, Pod and the Pendulum. Yes. I would love to hear about that one as well. So this is one, it started before Psychoanalysis, and I uh, started it with Jerry Smith. Jerry and I would cover franchises. So we would do, let's say there are four Scream movies, we would do four episodes on Scream, and we would just start you know, running through all the classics, like Friday uh, Friday the 13th, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street. In November of 2020, Jerry had to step away. Like, he's put pretty huge emphasis on um, making music in the past year. Um, I would definitely recommend going to Bandcamp and checking out his um, project, Rainy Day for Ghosts. Um, mm-hmm. He makes this incredibly moody and atmospheric music. It's a lot of fun to listen to. Um, so he had to focus on that and his writing and some other stuff. And in the past year, like Lindsay, Travis, and I have continued the show where we've covered things like Urban Legend and Final Destination, the Conjuring movies, and the Evil Dead series. We just wrapped – oh, this month we're doing like non-franchise stuff, more like shoot the shit episodes in preparation for Halloween. Things like video games and comic books and uh, festival movies we've seen just to change it up. So that show – it's like 125 episodes um you know Lindsay and i have talked i think our schedules have gotten a bit bananas and i would say check the show out while it's still there it it may go on hold for a little bit or it may pick up in a slightly different form but it's another show like i'm really proud of like my goal with that was like when 
we're done talking about all the Halloween movies. We wanted listeners to say, damn, like we've got that covered like soup to nuts. It's like a real oral history of like the movies we covered. And, you know, I'd say like there are other uh, shows like Halloweenies and Kill by Kill that do stuff that is very similar to what we're doing. And they do it a little bit different in a completely amazing way. But I would say like I, I really like being kind of lumped in with that crew. So Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Um, so also, I got to meet you mm-hmm. in 2018 at Telluride Horror Show. And that that was my very first festival. And it was amazing. And so I, I it's amazing to me. I'm curious how you got involved with Telluride. So, yeah, we ran each other on the goose. On yeah, we the, did. The, the shuttle that goes around. <laughs> yeah. I have to say that you should be proud of me because, like, I was just going to sit there and not say anything because I am incredibly shy mm-hmm. in person. And I was like, no, I need to say, I need to say hi. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, but I almost, I oh, was this close to not saying hi. And I was like, it's Terry from Kaylee Dreadful. Like, I like <laughs> your stuff. And that's how friendships are made. Mm-hmm. I got involved with Tell You Right Horror, like Brad McCarg, who's been one of the hosts there. Um, offered me press to come out and cover the festival for their third year. Uh, it was like their third festival. I'm like, sure, I'll come out and cover it for press. Like, absolutely. Like, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, and then, like, a couple weeks before the festival, their other co at the time, they were only doing two screens, and it was really only locals that would go to the festival, still really small. Their other co-hosts had to drop out. So mm. Brad's like, hey, I know that you host indie horror out in Boston, and you've done hosting, uh, and you're kind of a loudmouth who likes to hear himself speak, <laughs> um, which he didn't say that, but if you know Brad, that is something you could picture him oh, saying. I can um, so see him saying that. I wasn't going to bat an eye. <laughs> yeah. He's like, do you want to host? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a loud mouth that likes to hear myself speak. Absolutely. Um, and it was just one of the best experiences of my life. Like just getting up to introduce all of these like phenomenal fucking indie horror movies and all these short films, meeting all the filmmakers. The crowds are excellent. And uh, Ted, who Ted Wilson, who uh, founded and runs a fest, is like, this is your gig every year if you want it. Uh, I'm like, wait, you're going to pay me and put me up and pay, and pay, you're going to pay my airfare and you're going to put me up in lodging and you're going to, you know, hand me like a nice little check at the end of this to come watch horror movies for three days in the most beautiful spot in the whole country, oh. like. Listeners, it is both expensive to to stay there, oh, and it is absolutely beautiful. So this is like it is amazing, insane. It's the most beautiful place I've ever been. Yeah, it is like I mean, having breakfast with like Phil Tippett, the dude who did you know animation work for like RoboCop and Jurassic yeah, Park and Star Wars, and you're like, I'm having breakfast with this dude. Like this is crazy. You know, meet, meeting Frank Henenlotter and like hearing oh. all his stories, and then by day three being like, I don't want to hear another Frank Henenlotter story. <laughs> you know, um, just like absolutely, he's the sweetest dude. Um, so I've gone there nine years and watching the fest Jeez. grow. Like we're in bigger theaters now. We've like sold out every freaking pass we could this past year. That's fucking um, amazing. It is just like the it's it's the thing I look forward to the most every single year. Like my three days going out there to host and see these friends I've made. Um, I wouldn't trade it for just about anything. I love it. Hell yeah, it's That's so awesome. good. Yeah. It's it's the it's my favorite. I really want to go. Been to. I can't wait you, to go. You need to go. You need it's to just, go next year. It was like it was so treacherous driving up there. Like I, I I'm gonna be honest. Like I was driving and 
there's like a point when you're almost getting to Telluride and you're driving up the, the mountain and there is no railing to the right of me. And I'm driving mm-hmm. with two friends and I'm looking over the side and how close we are to like oblivion. And I'm like, this might be the worst time to tell you guys and I'm afraid of heights mm-hmm. <laughs> as I am driving. Were you driving? Yes. Yeah. I was. Oh my God. And then on the way down when we were leaving, I was like, guys, I will pick up driving like 30 minutes to an hour after but I am not, I can't. And so I closed my eyes and I slept the first like 30 minutes to an hour on the way down. Because I was like, if we die, I don't want to see it coming. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sleep through that. Yeah, it's, for those that don't know, it's this little kind of like old mining slash ghost town that is nestled mm. like 7,000 feet above or 9,000 feet above sea level. And it's this tiny, tiny little town. Um it is like crazy expensive. Mm-hmm. Like their whole industries are like film festivals and skiing. Like that's mm-hmm. what people live on. Um, I think Oprah and Tom Cruise own properties there. Like that pretty much tells you kind of everything you need to know. But it is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. It really is. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about you mike mm-hmm. but what movie did you bring with you today oh we brought discuss? a good one hmm. we brought, we brought 1981 one. celebrating its 40th anniversary dear god um gary sherman's dead and buried dead and buried so here's a quick synopsis for everyone who isn't familiar uh dead and buried is a suspense horror film set in a small coastal town where after a series of gory murders committed by mobs of town people against visiting tourists the corpses begin to come back to life i love this imdb synopsis just sort of spoils the the movie like it does it just spoils it (laughs) but okay it did, but I still loved it because I wasn't. I it's it. I guess it does spoil it. I didn't think about that. I read the synopsis before I watched it, and I was like, okay. And then I was like, wait, hold on. That's the end of the movie. <laughs> Oops. But um, Mike, you have we you have said you have a very good story yeah. about this movie and why you brought it. So please tell us. I was so, I want to hear it badly. <laughs> so I have these this really distinct memory of watching this movie or parts of this movie with my parents in our like downstairs living room. Like I can still picture like where the fireplace was, the wood paneling, where the TV was. And we were one of the first families to get cable television. Mm -hmm. And if anyone remembers the really old school cable boxes, you could cut a sliver of an aluminum can and slide it in this little slot under the box and it would descramble it. I did this like as a kid, I'm like, (laughs) I'll try that out. So we got like all of a sudden we have like HBO and the movie channel and Showtime. Um, I remember watching this movie with my mom and my dad and the opening scene absolutely wrecked me. Do you remember how Um, old you were? I had to have been like seven or eight years old. It had Perfect. to be like oh, wow. right okay. when this thing would have debuted. I was pretty young. Like, Perfect and it's age. honestly like not the kind of thing my parents would typically let me watch. I don't know why. I think honestly because they had no idea what this movie was. It was just like we're flipping around. This looks like a nice beach scene. Let's sit down and watch this together and it should be okay. Oh, the opening of this movie feels like it should be a romantic comedy or a romantic oh, yeah. drama. It's such a meat cute that goes so horribly beautiful. awry. 
it's just this beautiful and i guess like when they filmed it it was a really sunny day and they ended up putting like tarps up to kind of block the sun because they wanted to give it that kind of fall in new england feel but you know i'm watching this and like number one like lisa blount like the actress in this from prince of darkness um oh that's she's right she's just like achingly beautiful in this movie and i remember yes. like it definitely hit at a time where I'm like just starting to notice things like that. Mm. It's serene, it's peaceful, and then it just turns in a dime. Like there's no setup, there's no real hint that things are going to go sour. Like it doesn't tip its hand in any way. And what really messed me up was just how, like, and I still have a hard time with horror where a person is completely incapacitated and they don't have any sort of means of escape. Like mm. mm-hmm. I can watch the grisliest slasher movie where someone at least has like a fighting chance to get away. But if you incapacitate someone and then just like slightly poke them, that will disturb me a lot more. Um, This was probably the first time I'd ever like watch someone get so viciously attacked in a movie. But what really set me over the edge is when they burn him alive and his like screaming, Mm -hmm. his face and the netting, um, those images like stuck with me for years like i remember like crying in my bed after seeing that and around this time i would have these really vivid nightmares and two that stuck out there's one where i'm driving home with my mom and i look up at the moon and it's this blood red moon with this like really vampiric face and i remember we pull up to our mailbox and i my mom's like you know open the mail and i open the mail and i get like pulled in by these like white gnarled hands um and then you know woke up like absolutely screaming oh my god and then the other one was reading like this newspaper that like a serial killer was on or a murderer was on the loose and i'm in like the local pharmacy with my mom and she's like insisting i go to the bathroom before we go and i'm like but i see the killer we have to get out of here and my mom was like it's a long drive home go pee he won't bother you uh and sure enough like i go into the bathroom and he comes in right after me and then holds up an axe and i wake up like i had dreams like that all the time for a short period like and i this in the i remember them being after like watching this bit of the movie um I did not even remember that, like, you know, you you see something and for years you're like, when I was a kid, I saw this thing and it wicked fucked me up. And what was it? Like, I had no idea what this movie was called. And then I think a year ago it came onto the shutter service and I'm like, oh, a Dan O'Bannon written movie. Like we're doing alien around this time. Let's check it out. And then that opening scene hit and I had to pause it and like leave the room, and I'm like, "Oh wow, holy shit!" Like this, it, I got shit. just chills, and then watched wow. it, you know, rewatched it, and that opening scene still slaps. Like it's not one of those things you're like, "Yeah, that was a bit ridiculous." Like, well, I don't understand why that scared me. I'm like, "Nope, no, that's horrifying." Even watching it today, I'm like, "That still works," and like I watched it. Um, in my office at work today at the school because I couldn't really do anything today. Couldn't really work with the kids. So I'm like, I'm just going to watch shutter. You know, I was going to never realize how boring my job was until I was pretty much <laughs> locked in my office all day. Um, I texted Terry. Um, what in the ass is this opening? This is fucking incredible. Like in the, oh, fr- yeah. the first opening scene, I was like, this is, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. Yep. 
and then it just it goes in this direction you don't expect. Like mm-hmm. the movie that starts and the movie you get do not feel like they're going to be in the same universe. Nope. Um, and this movie hits on some very specific like fears of mine about getting older and your body breaking down mm-hmm. and like kind of the loss of control that you have over time. Like it's a genuinely terrifying movie and I absolutely love it. Do you, do you remember when, if you were, when you were a kid, if you saw the whole film or if did your parents I stop it? I don't think I did to be okay. quite honest with mm-hmm. you. I don't even think my parents had to say, get out. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's I a think, very stark opening scene yeah. that just sort of like grabs you. Oh Yeah. That, um, I think I'm like, I will put myself to bed, please, and thank you. And, <laughs> um, I was all set at that point, but it, it just, it stuck with me. It really, really stuck with me. You know, as you're telling the story, I, cause I, I was thinking about my relationship with this movie because when I was a kid, I remember seeing a movie of some man bandaged up and it looked like there was a single eye and it looked like his mouth was in like some kind of twisted smile. I remember seeing this. I don't remember if it was like, cause one of the things you did back in like the eighties and nineties, when you went through the movie aisles, you would look at the backs of VHS art. I don't mm-hmm. know if this was like a picture on the back of a VHS. I don't know if it was like a trailer that was playing at the time in the, in the VHS store. I don't know how I saw this image, but I saw this image of this mummy man and it absolutely haunted me and has haunted me for years. And I never knew what it was from. And then sort of like you in 2018, I sat down to watch this movie. I was like, oh, Dan O'Bannon. I love him. I'm going to sit down and watch this movie. And I get to that scene. And just like you, I had fucking chills. I was like, yeah, holy shit. I was like, what? What? It works. It really works. That, that it, scene. And what's interesting is that as a kid, I was so terrified of it because I thought he was the, the, the villain. I thought he was the monster. And it was such a the, – the way that image looks it, when in a freeze frame, it looks like he is – malicious demonic mm-hmm. evil like he's going to re- fuck your shit up and then you find out when you're watching the movie that no it's it's actually very sad this is a, a victim this is a man that's gonna get his eye poked out by a fucking nurse like this is a traumatic thing but as a kid that image stayed with me my entire life until t- three years ago <laughs> and that is the best kind of movie like that is a genre movie that is working at all cylinders at that point. And mm-hmm. it's not, it, it's, it's an early eighties movie, but it still has that very grounded 1970s feel for oh, horror. Yeah. Like it, 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 you know, obviously it deals with fantastical material, but it never feels fantastical. It mm-hmm. doesn't go where like eighties horror would eventually go. No. And, and that's what I was thinking about rewatching at this time is, is the way that the opening scene, I mean, it's a meet cute. It's a romantic meet cute mm-hmm. in any other movie. And the scene of him snapping uh, pictures of like the still life and like the, all that kind of stuff. And then he sees the, the, the feet of the woman. And what, what made me laugh this time is that the sax kind of picks up in the song that's playing. Mm-hmm. And it's like this, it's like this kind of flirty, sexy sax number. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is, I'm, and even watching it this time, and it's been only two years since I first watched it, I was like genuinely shocked when she's snapping photos of him with the camera flashes. And then the town folk are just beating him senseless. Including a young Robert Englund. Uh, hello. Yes. Before Hello. you would become Freddy, right? Isn't that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, about yeah. three or four three years. Three or four before. years, yeah. Wild. So it, 
Yeah, it's just wild watching him pop up into things. He was very handsome. Oh, he was. Like, seeing him in that, like, my very God, handsome. what a dish. Mm-hmm. Um, just super Seriously. cute dude. What was great about that opening scene, too, like rewatching it, is the banter between the two of them. Oh. Because, like, he is not picking up on her vibe at all. Like, that kind of, like... I am, like, looking to kind of, like, flirt with you. Like, he's mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm a photographer from St. Louis. Like, you don't get famous. You might get money, but, you know, he's kind of, like, dismissing her. And it's not until they're a couple minutes in where he's like, wait a minute. Like, she's into me. And then things shift gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um and then, yeah, when they appear out of nowhere and then the other and, – and just beat the shit out of him and watching him – struggle in that netting and the way like his the nose is what got me and the way like one lip is kind of yeah ensnared in it um oh it's just it's really disturbing i would say like this movie rewatch what hit me today were two things number one it was written by robert shusett who's one of the producers of alien mm-hmm. and dan o'bannon did rewrites for it although he's the credited writer it was basically like put my name on it in order to get this movie made um but shusett and o'bannon obviously co-wrote alien together worked with ridley scott this movie has huge Halloween three, but also Blade Runner vibes mm-hmm. throughout. Like watching this is this idea of like not knowing your own identity and kind of like trying to hunt down this kind of noirish feel to it, where yes. you have like a lone person that is like trying to uncover this mystery of, and the whole movie is about identity and not knowing like what is real, what's free will. You know, I think it's like. The line that really hit me was when Hobbs or Nobbs is saying, she's dead. She doesn't have any memories. She has what I give her. Mm-hmm. Like huge replicant vibes going on there. And you could just see, you could just see Scott O'Bannon and Schuster shooting the shit around the table when they're coming up with Alien and just like, what else do you got? And like going into. I mean, like, and I don't know if this happened, obviously, but you could see where, like, very similar kind of ideas and themes taken in much different directions. Yes. I I had that same epiphany watching it now about how this sort of deconstructs the noir genre. And Mm -hmm. I was like, is this a new noir? I'm questioning because at the the reveal at the end where you find out that Dan, spoiler to everyone, is dead he has been suffering from amnesia this entire time. Basically he is, Mm -hmm. he doesn't understand his own identity. As you said, Mike, the fact that we have like a routine car accident that sort of like starts to open up, that there's something bigger going on there. And that, that mystery goes all the way up to the top of the town and the entire town is infected by this. The, the paranoia of someone not knowing what's happening and everyone around him seems to know a little bit more than he does. The femme fatales you have too. Mm -hmm. you have the nurse in the very beginning that, that ends up, you know, turning on the guy and then stabbing him in the hospital. And you also have Janet is ultimately revealed to be one by the end of the film. Lovely Melody Anderson from, Flash Gordon. Yes. What a run. Oh, great two year run for Melody Anderson here with Flash Gordon and then Dead and Buried. Um, one of the things that hit me when Dobbs says to Dan Gillis, I really love these back and forths between us. I don't think this is the first yes. time this has happened. And Dobbs is very much um, 
the puppeteer that mm-hmm. is kind of like setting up. It's kind of it's like the Matrix, like it's all happened before. Um, he's like, this is he basically wakes Dan up from like a slend. Maybe this time he's the sheriff, but I don't know. Maybe another time he is the principal or the doctor mm-hmm. or some mm-hmm. sort of assistant. Like you get the feeling that like this is kind of what keeps Dobbs occupied, setting up these kind of games for him. And that's a really chilling thought. Again, like to your statement of like amnesia, this this idea that like your memories no longer belong to you. This mm-hmm. idea that like you have a, f- a foggy recollection of the past or you just you don't know what came before. And that to me is a really terrifying thing. Yeah. And I also just wanted to point out that Dobbs is played by Jack Albertson, who plays Grandpa Joe and Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, mm-hmm. um, which he is does. where I know him from. And so this is the first time I've seen this movie and really had actually ever heard of it. And I'm mm-hmm. so glad that you brought this movie to the podcast because this is a fast favorite. This is incredible mm-hmm. film. But Going from, like, the character that I know him as, like, the joyful Grandpa Mm. Joe, who's, like, singing Mm -hmm. and dancing around, and then this character, it's so, it it was, like, a mindfuck, but he's incredible as the villain, because he kind of has that little bit of glee that he imbues in Grandpa Joe. Like, he has this, every time, like, someone's talking to him, it feels like he's got a smile in his voice, even if he's talking about something serious, like, he knows what's going on. Like, he's a, like you said, he's the puppet master, Mm -hmm. and, like, so you can, you can hear him smile and being kind of gleeful about his game that he's playing basically with the whole town. He's incredible in this film. Just my mo- a moment towards the end where um, the sheriff comes in and he... he, he- He's like sleeping in <laughs> what the fuck is that called? Like the in the morgue, like in the one of like the beds that slide mm-hmm. out where you the slabs you put the body. He's just sleeping in it, and he just yep. like comes on out and it just steps out, and it's just like that eccentric mortician vibe that you get mm-hmm. in a lot of horror movies, but like even more sinister yeah. because at this point it's like the end of the movie, and you're like, ooh, something is about to happen. But it's just like the little moments like that with his character just it's... make him all the more creepy and perfect. He he gives off this vibe because you mentioned the glee that he gets. He gives off the vibe like, have you ever bought someone like a birthday or Christmas gift that you know the person you're giving it to is going to absolutely love it, mm-hmm. but they have zero idea of what they're actually opening up? Like, mm-hmm. you know they're going to be like shocked and surprised and love it. And you get that look on your face like, oh, I can't wait until this person opens it. Like – um Albertson, his character of, of Mort, the Mortician Dobbs, like has that look throughout like the last third of this movie. When you start to realize, yeah. you know how plugged into this thing he is. Um, it's really wonderful. It's a really wonderful performance by Albertson, who I believe like passed away like a couple months after this movie oh, debuted. Yeah. yeah, I think he was able to attend mm-hmm. the premiere with like the assistance of like an oxygen tank, but mm. he was really ill at the time of filming it. And you can see like like you said, like Grandpa Joe, he's bedridden in Willy Wonka, but he still looks pretty like he does not look like a guy that's been bedridden for twenty years. And here you get that really gaunt, emaciated almost skeletal look to him, uh, mm-hmm. which was not by design. Um the other thing is like that last line of the movie when when Dan realizes that he's dead and he looks at his hands and they're falling apart and Mm. Dobbs just says, Oh, let me fix those for you again. It's just, 
and then it ends. And it just like freeze frame, freeze frame yeah. ends. End. <sighs> you know, there's there's two points that like this is bringing up to me. The first one, as I was watching this this time, was how much um, this kind of feels like tra- uh, not training wheels, but sort of like the things that he's exploring in here, he would go on to explore in the return of the living dead as mm-hmm. a director, because you have like mm-hmm. the, the mortician that is eccentric in, in both of those. And you have like the return of the living dead is all about like th- these dead people. They eat brains because they're suffering and that's the pain and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And I was thinking about that with, in relation to this, where everyone in this movie ultimately ends up being zombies mm-hmm. and, that kind of like pain of like your body rebelling against yourselves and like that kind of the last scene of him, his hand, he's looking at his hands and they're desiccated and falling apart mm-hmm. and rotting that kind of aspect to it. Just like I was thinking, I can see some of the themes in here that he goes on to explore. Yeah. Like what? Six, five, four years later, four years mm-hmm. later, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and also like the version of the zombie they have in here is more like the traditional classic horror zombie. Mm-hmm. And especially when Janet is reading it to the kid, I think it's the kid and like the, the scene where she's talking to the kids about yep. witchcraft, I believe yep. she's talking about um, like how they're reanimated as servants. And mm-hmm. it's not the kind of typical like bite the zombies that kind of we know now, but it is that more traditional like in white zombie in the first kind of beginning zombie movies when it was more based in voodoo. Which I thought was so interesting. I was like, oh, what a, an interesting kind of callback to horror history in a way with this kind of zombie. But this kind of zombie also to me is so much more terrifying because he is orchestrating this. Like the, he's reanimating them mm-hmm. for his own design in that really incredible reveal sequence when he when he fires up the projector and like all of the film starts playing of all of the murders, because the recurring motif in this is that every time someone is killed there, everyone's taking pictures. It's being filmed. Like it's a spectacle and there's flashes. Um, He's making his own snuff talk films. About, cause, mm. Yeah. Okay. I was thinking that because there's especially this moment where you see them slitting this guy's throat and i'm like this is like this is snuff film these are snuff films and he is collecting them and he's watching them and he's showing them again and it's so creepy and i feel like that's not as like jumped into as much as i would like but at the same time what's really what i love too was when he was like i'm not going to explain shit to you guys i'm taking my secret to the grave and i was like I respect when a movie does that and not just like leaves it open. This but is it's the part where the villain's going like, to spill his soul mm-hmm. and tell all about this is all my plan from the beginning. He doesn't do that. Yeah. And like, you know, it could be considered like, oh, they just didn't want to write an explanation, but it fit his character into being like, I'm not going to tell you how I did this. Like, this is my fun little project where I right. make dead people pretty again. And like there, I don't want to put them in the ground because look at my work. I can't hide my art. It's from his everybody. Art. He's angry when, like the he's angry at Dan when he's not able to get the identity of the first victim. I remember him saying, like, if you could contact his family somehow, I could make him pretty. I could have like yes. an open casket. How dare now I have to have like a closed casket. Um and there's this idea that goes through because the cameras are never explained. Like one of the nope. things that reoccur is like, and you, I imagine maybe it's like some sort of trigger, like the flash. Because you see this in other movies as well, where like uh, Get Out uses this actually. Get Out uses this exactly as one of the, mm-hmm. and I wonder if that's mm-hmm. maybe where Jordan Peele got this from. This idea that when the camera flash goes off, like for a moment you're restored, like you know who you are again. But you know, one of the things the camera does is it 
captures and preserves a moment for eternity or for as long as that picture lasts. And one of the big motives, motifs of this film is like the idea of like the human form changing and aging or in this case rotting away because they're all dead. I think it says that um, uh, Janet, she can only stay in human her form, which is really gorgeous. I mean, Melody Anderson is a beautiful woman. She's stunning. Mm -hmm. um, three weeks at best, and then she needs to be touched up again. This idea that like we take pictures of ourselves and look at how we used to look because we want to preserve those memories and you know the picture we have in our brain of how we appear versus the reality of what's in the mirror it's not always the most flattering thing and we have this weird obsession with physical perfection um and anything that is not physically perfect needs to be changed and the imperfections need to be literally in this movie sculpted away you see this with yeah. the hitchhiker where he oh. re-sculpts oh, her to scene. his liking <sighs> And again, Stan Winston, like, we talk about his work a lot in things like The Terminator. Um, I never hear this movie really brought up when it comes to, like, Stan Winston and his effects. And this, this is some of his best work. Like, this is some incredible effects work. I think because it's, it's very, it's very um, subdued or subtle, yeah. I think. And the, the scene that really jumped out at me this time was the hitchhiker scene where we are seeing the kind of, like uh, – time-lapse photography of the the person being built back up from the from well taken apart and then built back up and mm -hmm. it's a scene where where dobbs is using that device to like pull open her eyelid mm -hmm. and then popping in that mm. eye it's like so squidgy and it just like mm -hmm. i was like oh this is really uncomfortable to watch yeah. uh but also kind of to your point his his comment my one of my favorite lines on this watch and i took a note of it this time was his comment about how a cosmetologist gives birth i make souvenirs he is making mm. these kind of playthings these sort of like souvenirs to to life that he is able to stage to play with to like examine to like enjoy and it's it's not real life it is a facsimile of of life and i thought that that was such a interesting little bit of tidbit to his kind of the way his mind thinks as he is as creating this town of, of dead people. It's yeah. Wild. Yeah. And they're all his playthings. Like mm -hmm. these dead people are all, it's imaginary life. Like it's not a life at all. It's like he says, the lives that he gives them. Um, they only remember what mm -hmm. he implants in them. Mm -hmm. um, they basically are at his command. One of the moments that affected me a lot. And you mentioned, Return of the Living Dead and this idea of eating brains in order to quell the suffering of being mm -hmm. dead. Um, when he buries Janet and the townspersons all mm -hmm. show up, that's typically the scene where, all right, now your monsters are going to try to tear away at the hero and he needs to escape them because they're going to pull him limb from limb. It's like it's the Rhodes moment in Day of the Dead. It's right. the opposite here. Like it's a really poignant scene where. Number one, they're all offering him solace mm -hmm. for his loss and comfort, but they're also in some ways a little bit jealous because Janet is now at peace and she's at rest. Mm -hmm. And you get the idea that each of them, they at some level know what has happened to them. Right. They understand that like they are not who they think that they are and something has been robbed from them like that sense of um 
that sense of free will has been taken away from them. And now they're all these kind of Calvinistic monsters where, Mm. you know, everything has been predetermined, all of their actions, all of their motives, all of their thoughts don't Mm. really belong to them, but they belong to some sort of higher power in the form of, of Dobbs. And they're sad for that. And they're kind of suffering for that, that, that hurt watching that this time around Mm -hmm. in this little monster movie. Yeah. I know you talked a little bit about this, Mary Beth, but um, I'm curious what what you thought watching this for the first time uh, today. Yeah, so I, I guess I don't know. I don't know why I thought this. I have I I could not tell you why. I one I thought that this was going to just be a like more of a horror comedy, and I also thought it has something to do with aliens. Do not ask me why I thought that. I could well, not explain to you why I thought that. Because the co- because the cover like the line is is the the sort of tagline on on the the poster is the creators of Alien bring a new terror to Earth, and so it kind of gives that, oh, that sort of like yeah. that idea that the, that this is aliens. I would I would think, but sorry, go on. Yeah, no, but that that is a good that that makes a lot of sense. But I started watching it, and then the opening scene happened. I texted Terry like, "What the fuck? This is incredible!" And then I was sold. Like I was absolutely hooked with this movie and like once again this podcast is a great way for me to be watching these movies that I've never heard of or wouldn't have or really might not have been exposed to or like had had to have been like forced to watch mm-hmm. because this is it's so creepy and it's so unnerving and it's unsettling and the ending really hit me like especially when um Dan right the sheriff mm-hmm. like the sheriff the screams he lets out when oh. he finds out this is happening because I feel like a lot of in a lot of horror movies, the hero, the, the male hero finds these things out and he is kind of still kind of compo- has his composure is like, you're crazy, but it doesn't have this like kind of huge scream or this big moment of catharsis as often. And just having his first reaction be wailing mm-hmm. really just like cut me because that's in my mind, like my reaction would just be like, what? Like just an, an outright, just letting loose of this like primal scream of realizing like what is going on and like a complete not being able to understand like what is, ha- like what is being revealed to you. Cosmic like horror. your wife is not who you think it is. Yeah. Like, and this is before he finds out that he himself is one of these creations. And he's like my wife, like he, wa- he sees this video of his wife having sex with somebody and killing him mm-hmm. while the whole town walks in. And it's just like the the entire like third act is just harrowing, emotionally intense, but also like the mystery in this movie is is propped up by these really incredible set pieces. Like the part that really got to me was when the family was in oh. the house. Mm-hmm. What a great set piece! Um, that's an incredible moment where it's this family. They're tourists. They they get into an accident and they crash in front of a house and they think, oh, we should get help a cold compress for our kid who hit his head so they walk into this abandoned house which is you know always the smart move but you saw a light in the window (laughs) okay i want to pause for a moment because i immediately when that happened this time started singing there's a light over at the front (laughs) like i was like it's rocky horror in in another life this would be a rocky horror movie but sorry go on i was just like and I love the arguing couple where he's like, I'll prove to you that like no one's here by going into the creepy basement. Right. He's like, the, the, the dad would rather be, you know, go into the murder uh, basement the just murder to be right basement. than yeah. get out of the house. With like matches. Not yeah. even with a flashlight. Is, he has matches. Which, the match is my favorite. I'm like, he just whipped out a box of matches. Like that tells you 
like the era. Mm-hmm. But like, despite it being very much, it felt very much like a horror movie cold open a little bit mm. in a way to me. Like in in the middle of the movie, but then it's like you're kind of laughing at them. Like you're making all of those classic horror mistakes. But then the like the entire time they're talking, you see shadows in the window. Yes. So yep. like. You see someone behind them. So, like, you know they're not in the house, but they're getting fucked with, basically. And then the guy bursts through the window with the ca- with the camera, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. The camera. And then they try to go out the door, and there's a guy with a huge light. And that, for some... Like, the idea of having someone blinding you with a giant light is just, like, horrifying in terms so of being surreal. completely and utterly yeah. disoriented. And then all of a sudden, people just start flooding into the house. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminded me a little bit of um, We Are Still Here, mm-hmm. the okay. Ted, Ted, Ted Gigan. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, only because, like, that kind of – that sequence and all the people come into the house and start attacking the family. I just, like – and I got that small vibe. But then, like, they run upstairs and jump out the window. Like, I love that there was no hesitation for jumping out the window, though, because I feel like they, he was just, like, pushing her and the kid <laughs> out of the – get the fuck out of the house. Like, they I just do it. Tuck and roll out. Of <laughs> if you're in that dad, it seems like it's a fairly unhappy marriage. So you're like, it's a win-win. Either A, we're going to get away, or B, like she's going to fall to her death and bachelorhood comes back again. Like he that did not seem like a very – no. And I can no. imagine, I can only imagine like Thanksgiving later when they're around the table and you would kind of get the like, you won't believe what this jackass did. He almost got us killed by going into the murder house <laughs> basement, you know, and I told him not to do it. You know, you could see that story being shared for generations to come. Well, and the other part of the scene that really was terrifying to me was, like, they escape the house, Mm -hmm. but then it keeps, like, there's the people behind them. The car won't start. There's a fucking woman in the Mm backseat of the goddamn car. And that got me, that jump scare, where she sat up and they take the kid and they shove her out of the car. And you see, like, like, the the stitches on her head? Mm -hmm. Yes, like, they. I thought... Oh, I thought they ripped off part of her hair or something. I think they but probably like, did, they, and there's, they, like, the stitches underneath yeah, or something. Yeah, and there's just you see some skull, and you're like, oh, something is very wrong here. And then she jumps on the car, and they just speed through speed through the town, and then the sheriff hits somebody with his car. Mm-hmm. But the entire sequence is just unrelenting. It's just, like, hit after hit after yep. hit after hit. And I was just like, oh, my God. This is incredible. Like, the tension and the suspense that they create in that moment, they don't just let it break. They keep it no. going and make it such a terrifying sequence. Like, oh, my God, when, like, the the, the town is backlit and they're walking towards them and, like, oh, it's the yeah. guy with the giant light <laughs> and they're all just <laughs> yeah. slowly walking towards them. Like, it's just the- terrifying. It's terrifying. I was not yeah. expecting how terrifying these sequences were going to be in this movie. And I'm so glad. Like, again, very good, like, Sleeper Halloween, like Halloween week movie was mm. very like not anticipating that. And I'm very excited. It was that it, it in the town itself, uh, the town of Potter's Bluff becomes a character in and of itself. Like mm-hmm. I am a sucker for small town with a secret movies. Oh, especially yeah, me too. Especially Hell like small yes. towns, coastal, like mm-hmm. on the sea. Oh. Give it to me. Just put it in mm. my veins. Um, and to your point, like Mary Beth, like it's not like these aren't scares that we haven't seen a hundred or a thousand times over in 
thousands of movies in the past 40 years, but there's just something about the way that these are staged, the way they're lit, the way they're edited, where it just, it just gives you a little bit more. Uh, and like, to your point, like shining a huge light in someone's face rather than just like brandishing a weapon, you don't expect that you would if it was like an axe over his head, that would be cool. And you would get startled, but it's not unnerving like just like blinding someone for a moment is um and you also you don't get a feel for like what is the end game here like why Mm -hmm. are they doing this that is all that uncertainty also makes it unreal um another movie that's new that gives off this vibe and he said he pulled directly from dead and buried um mickey keating who directed darling psychopaths and what am i pod and i know i'm missing a couple his new movie off season yep um starring jocelyn donahue it gives off like a massive dead and buried vibe to it mixed with silent hill oh yeah very mixed with silent hill best adaptation of silent hill the video game I've ever seen without actually being called that. Um, I think people are going to really dig, dig, dig off season. Just like, sorry, I'm looking it up right now and putting it mm-hmm. on my watch list because I loved Pod and Darling. Like I love yeah. that like low key, like very DIY. Yep. Bumblecore kind yeah. of horror movie. And it is that, so. but it's 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 small and intimate, but like looks massive in scale. If that makes any sense, I think fans are going to really dig that. Um, the other movie that, like, I, I feel like Halloween 3 and Dead and Buried share a lot of the same DNA. You have a person, like, investigating a mystery. Mm-hmm. You have this group of, like, humans that aren't human. And then you have, like, this kind of malignant puppet master kind of pulling all the strings and kind of doing it out of this sense of, like, glee, just to kind mm. of get his own jollies from it. And again, you have, like, the the heroine who doesn't end up being a heroine at the end like this shares like a lot of the dna of i can see that season of the witch um, i can see that yeah without being sure. a ripoff they're obviously different movies i think right. both owe a pretty good deal to you know 1950s uh, invasion of a bot the body snatchers um which is a classic story you can tell in many different ways but this like <laughs> It just adds that noir feel that oh, just it just it's perfection. Yeah, you said earlier, Mike, about how this this doesn't feel like an eighties film. It feels like a seventies. And mm-hmm. the invasion the invasion of the body snatchers definitely I think feels in that the sort of like a lot of the seventies, there's a lot of paranoid thrillers, yeah. a lot of like the either like espionage, but it was all about sort of like political intrigue or it was mm-hmm. about this, this not knowing what's really going on. Yeah. And that is at the center of this movie. And I, oh, what yeah. I think this movie does so well is the way that it unfolds the twists very slowly, but very like purposefully where the opening is that meat cue that turns horrifying. And then you see Midge, the waitress who lit that guy on fire, is just a waitress in this town. So it's like all of a mm-hmm. sudden like, oh, what is going on here? And then the reveal that Freddie is alive and he's a gas attendant here. And it's like, what if you hadn't read that IMDb synopsis, you'd be like, what is going on mm-hmm. in this town? And then Dan hitting someone in the arm, twitching in the grill and the man or mm-hmm. the person picking up and running off with it. The dead hitchhiker sitting up on the table like it is unf- unspooling these little facts to us that yeah. either a 
Dan doesn't know about or Dan is completely in the in the dark on because we're seeing a stuff that he doesn't necessarily see. So there's that dramatic irony of like starting to piece things together before Dan actually gets to that point himself. And it's just the way that these little twists are um, unfurled at just the perfect moment of like changing the direction of the plot. It's just it becomes such a bigger thing than what it seems like it should be in the very beginning. And I love that about it. Yeah. And it, the, the the filmmakers give you nothing as it goes along the way. No. Like it, I think in a way that respects the audience. And I don't necessarily think that movies do that anymore. Cause I think audiences don't allow for filmmakers to do that as much anymore. Like you would need like an end of, or midway through the second act, you would need like some sort of exposition dump mm-hmm. that would at least clue you in. And I think what dead and Barry does is it, it tells the audience like you're adults, you can go along for the ride and we will give you things when it's time to give them to you. But we expect you to kind of pay attention and um, let us tell the story the way we want to tell it. Uh, and to your point about the seventies being filled with paranoia, you know, it was a time where like we were let down. I think maybe for the first time as a country, we understood that like our government let us down, mm-hmm. whether that be uh, through Watergate, mm-hmm. whether that be through Vietnam, Vietnam yep. whether it be through um, like the promise of like civil rights being cut short. Um, it was a time of tremendous paranoia and anxiety in our country. Obviously, we were in the mid- middle of the Cold War and nuclear yep. proliferation. And we were kind of wrestling with it as much as we do now. I think now we expect our government to let us down. Um, and we're a lot more cynical for that. I think rightfully so. We were wrestling as a country with this idea of like the persons we have been told to trust our whole lives yep. are among the most untrusty, un- untrustworthy motherfuckers there are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the cinema of that time reflects that. And it became a lot more personal. Um, and a lot more paranoid. And it's honestly why I think the 1970s are our best era of filmmaking, period. Like the, you look at the stuff that came from that era, and uh, for me personally, it's unparalleled. Like if I could only watch yeah. one decade worth of movies, it would be from then. Well, it's. I was thinking about that in particular with, with this because this again feels like it should have been released in the 70s because you do have that sort of like inward looking where it's not the – the outside forces that are coming in, it's not aliens coming to destroy us. It's not someone else coming in from a different country. It is ourselves. It's like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's our backyard. It's like the, it's, it's this movie. It's, it's movies like that where it's, it's revealed to be internal to the United States. And we start to see that a little bit in some movies in, in the eighties. So this kind of bridges that. Cause like I was thinking about Poltergeist as well, about how it's like we moved to suburbia and suburbia is fucking us over that kind of like aspect of, 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 America failing us in spectacular ways. And that's what this is about. It's about this town that isn't what it seems. And it is killing people and turning them into their playthings. It's haunting. And gleeful, disgusting, mm. fun, and skin. nightmares. And do- oh, God. The acid up the nose. And yeah. the way she's just watching it and, like, shoving it up his nose and just smiling, like, kind of creepily, yeah. like... Not quite smiling. Oh, Lisa Blount is so good in this. Like the she really is. You know, yes. Really, she doesn't have a lot of screen time, but she's absolutely chilling every time she makes an appearance 
on screen. And I, I think that's why, like, to this day, like, this movie, for different reasons from, like, seven or eight-year-old me, like, it's still pretty nightmare-inducing. And maybe part of it, too, is, like, like to your point, Mary Beth, like, it's one you watch for the first time ever for this show. It doesn't come up a ton when people talk about, like, the best of or classic horror yes. of its era. Um, it's something that maybe is largely ignored. Um, and I don't want to say underrated. I think like overrated and underrated are maybe terms that get thrown around too much, but maybe underappreciated or underacknowledged. Yeah. Underseen so, for sure. Underdiscussed, I think. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So if you have Shutter or Amazon Prime, it's on both of those services. Like definitely, definitely give this one a spin. I do Seriously. have a question. Yep. Why does James Ferentino look like the love child of Richard Lewis and Dan Hedaya? <laughs> I was watching this and I was like looking at him thinking, this guy looks like the guy that played President Nixon and Dick. And I was like, that was the that was the one movie I was like, who does he look like? It's that guy from and I was trying to think, and it was like the guy the guy that played President Nixon and Dick. And I was like, no, but there's someone else too. And then I was like, no, it's Richard Lewis from Prince from a uh uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. So it's like that. He looks like the love child of the two of them. He looks like a Caucasian Edward J. G. Almost. He looks <laughs> yes! like he should be piloting the Battlestar <laughs> the Galactica. Galactica. Uh, or like. So say we all. <laughs> or like third capo in the Sopranos crew. Like he should be running. He should be running numbers for like Johnny Boy Soprano in the. <laughs> you know, like he just looks like yes. has that gangster look to him. I mean, he looks like every 70s male lead. He, he, he looks like a, a totally lived in, you know, this guy has seen some shit, you know, Um this would be like Timothy Chalamet. Would is, am I saying that right? Like he would get yeah. the lead in the Dead and Buried remake. Oh, he would, you know? and I wouldn't believe a moment of the movie at that point. America's Twink. So, uh. well, do we want to wrap up and give this movie a rating out of five? That sounds good. Sure. Terry, how many camera flashes out of five? Do you give Dead and Buried? Oh, man. You know, okay. I think I went to look back at my letterbox score because this is the second time that I've watched this. And I watched it for the first time in 2018. And I don't know why I gave it three back then. I immediately deleted that because uh, this is much better <laughs> than a three. I don't know what I was what I was thinking back then. Uh, I, You know, I think I think for me, this is between a four and a four and a half camera flashes. Uh, I think that this movie is the the way I'm always gosh. Okay. What surprised me on this watch was how much the movie surprised me on this watch. Again, it's mm -hmm. only the second time I watched it, but I was watching this again and I was immediately caught up. I was like, Oh, this is such a romantic scene in the beginning. I was like, what movie is this? I don't remember this at all. And then it turns. And then the, the way that it unfurls the, the, the plot twist, I was like, this is surprising me all over again. And I watched it, what, three years ago? But it's, it's the way the movie kind of gets under your skin, the way it sort of unravels that paranoia, the way that it tackles noir in such a fantastic way and, and, and in a way deconstructs that subgenre in a very interesting way for a, for a 1980s creature feature basically in a way i just i think this movie is fantastic uh so i i'm 
I don't know. Let's give it four and a half. I'll give it four and a half camera flashes because I it's somewhere in between there for me. This movie, I think, is underseen, underappreciated for sure. Like you said, Mike, what about you, Mary Beth? I'll give this four camera flashes out of five. I, like I said before, incredibly surprised by this movie. Uh, an incredible example of why I love this podcast and a movie that I got to see that I might not have ever watched or have been exposed to and been completely surprised, especially by Albertson's performance. Like that was what really struck me with this movie, especially is just his character and his, his kind of orchestrating of the whole thing. But I also love Janet's character and the scene I, want to just briefly mention me and talk about was when he finds the voodoo book in her drawer and there's this like really intense tension between the two of them and it's just the like i don't know just the emotional intensity of this movie was so unexpected but in a in a very surprising in a great way and it was it's a movie i want to watch again already just so i can like absorb it again and i think it's got some terrifying set pieces some incredible practical effects and just a chilling like story and it watch it guys if you have shutter it's it's there for you to watch um mike you have the final word how many camera flashes so out of five do you it, give this film as terry went back and mentioned i had to look up my what's my letterbox score for this i gave it five so i'm going five camera flashes hell yeah and is it a perfect movie no of course not mm. a few things are um you know, it's 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 no shakes the clown in terms of movie perfection. Love you, Bobcat Goldthwait. Um <laughs> But this movie was literally nightmare fuel for me for forty years. Yeah. And if a movie yeah. can do that, then my God, it has a way of sticking. And then rewatching it as an adult, and then finding all new terrors from this movie. Um, it's just one of those things that it, it sticks in the gullet. It sticks with you long after you're done playing with it. I already know that tonight when I go to bed, I will lie awake for a good 20 minutes longer than I normally would, like thinking about some of the things from this film. And why else do we consume art except for it to have it consume us oh, yeah. after we're done with it? You know, I don't want anything that's going to be immediately disposable. I want this sort of thing. Um, I would say that if you're looking for something to pair like this ha Halloween season or post Halloween this and the fog together, I think, oh. would be two wonderful yes. movies to kind of watch back to back for different reasons. Yes, of course, the remake <laughs> starring Smallville's Tom Welling, Tom um, Welling. who actually he probably would get like James Farentino because he's at that age. <laughs> I so. was gonna say he does kind of have the hair, or at least he yep. had the hair and oh. that kind of look. So yeah, so no, that's a he, great pairing. That would be it'd be a very a fun watch. I'd definitely seek this out. Yeah, definitely, definitely seek out Dead and Buried if you haven't. Uh, I just love it. It's so good. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us to talk about Dead and Buried and for introducing it to to Mary Beth. Where can our listeners find you, and what do you have coming up that you'd like to share? Sure. So you can find me over on Twitter at mike underscore snoonian. Um, you could also follow our show's um, psychoanalysis at Psycho A Pod and the Pod of the Pendulum at Pod and Pend over on Twitter. Um, so for no for October at the Pod of the Pendulum, we did something a little different where we did like shorter shoot the shit style episodes, which were a lot of fun to do, and they're a little bit low pressure. Uh, if you haven't listened to the Pod of the Pendulum. 
go back and listen to like our episodes on Alien or John Carpenter's Halloween or R2 on the first Elm Street. That'll give you a really good feel, I think, of what in our Blair Witch Project episode. That gives you a good feel of like what we're all about and then see if you want to kind of take it from there. At Psychoanalysis, it's a really fun month. We're doing childhood development this month, mm. um, which is a really, really fun. I got to talk about like uh, Freud's theory of psychosexual development <laughs> and um, uh, Piaget's development uh, de- operational uh, operant theory. So this month we just recorded our episode on uh, ginger snaps uh, yesterday. Um, I still need to and- see that movie. Oh, it's it's good. You know, it's it's solid. Um, growing up as a teen girl in the early two thousands, <laughs> it really captured my experience. Um, so we have that. We have the faculty, um, and I am already. Oh, we're doing Raw as our other movie on Ooh. on oh, um, development. Hell so yeah. yeah, and again, like that show was great for like Jen and Lara. Um, I don't I don't know anyone who works harder than Jen in terms of like putting things together and getting everything set up and Lara is just this incredibly intelligent woman um with these like just fierce takes and takes that come out of left field that I would not have seen in a hundred years that are like, oh, that that's brilliant. Um I will absolutely ask you to delete this part out of your show. We must keep her down. No, they are I'm truly, <laughs> truly blessed between that and between and with Lindsay at the pod and the pendulum to work with some incredibly intelligent women that um, I get to learn things I never would otherwise. Awesome. Cool. So. That's awesome. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with Dead and Buried? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you small-town dicks, this is The Briefing Room. 
Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in the briefing room. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.